The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This season is brought to you by the Threshold Community, a new collaboration between me and my dear friend Holly Trular. We're gathering online with like-minded, collapse-aware people to tend the threshold of the twilight times of the world as we've known it. Together, we're exploring collapse preparedness, attachment, trauma, animism, grief, justice, creativity, and play. Read all about it at thethresholdcommunity.com and find us on Instagram at Tending the Threshold. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with Bear Bear. Bear is a life coach, artist, and social justice educator who helps socially conscious humans align their actions with their values. In their coaching and teaching, they apply a feminist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist lens. I did what many people did in May and June and edited the accounts that I follow on Instagram. I don't tend to follow very many white person influencer accounts on Instagram. I actually follow a lot of farms and flower growers and sheep of the day, goats to gram type accounts, hashtag Highland Ponies, hashtag Draft Horse, wish people would use those more. Anyway, Bears was the one white person life coaching influencer type account that I actually had learned a lot from and really enjoyed watching and continue to do so. Their coaching situates personal actualization within a systemic context and it accounts for the intersections of privilege and oppression. And that's totally my jam. So I was very excited to invite Bear on the show. Here's my conversation with Bear A. Bear about unlearning oppression. So Bear, what identities do you lead with? Um, well, I say that I am a queer, white, and Southern. Um, uh, southern being from the Southern United States. Um, I'm a Scorpio. Me too. Uh, oh yay! I love I love I love us. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> We're and like everybody so... now who's not Scorpio is like we hate them. <laughs> How did they become so lovable? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, in terms of my like work identities, I identify as a life and a business coach. Um, I also have recently started taking on the the identity or the the job title of social justice educator. Um, I've circled around that for a long time, but but have sort of landed on like, okay, I can really claim that that's true. Um, yeah, and then in the broader senses, I like my deepest heart is as an artist. That's, I, I'm a visual artist by trade and, and by, by nature. Um, I'm recently an herbalist, which feels like a really beautiful thing to get to call myself. Um, Yeah, and I feel really like, uh, I don't feel like I'm a healer in the way of like healing other people, but I feel like I'm a healer in the way of like super deeply invested in my own healing and in the healing of my communities and like the healing of the world. So, um, yeah. That's beautiful. I love that um, reclamation of healer as as an identity of of a way of being and um, tending to the self as well as the community. That's beautiful. So I noticed that you go by they, them pronouns, and um, I'm a parent of a 16-year-old trans son, and I'm always curious about other people's gender journeys, just always trying to expand my range of possibilities, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share anything about um, how you landed on they, them as a pronoun. Yeah, um, 
you know, I, I was assigned female, went by she, her for a long time. And I guess about nine years ago, I had to look at my calendar when I was thinking about this. I was like, okay, how long ago did that happen? Um, nine years ago, I changed my name, my first name and changed my pronouns along with it. And, um, you know, it's really wild to, to have sort of come up as a queer person in the the time period. I mean, maybe that's true for all queer people always that like things have always been changing in really rapid ways, but it feels like, you know, coming out as queer in like 2002, the world was really wildly different. Um, and the way that we were thinking about gender was really wildly different even just 20 years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the identity that I sort of claimed for myself and when I changed my name and pronouns um, was genderqueer, which is interesting because like even now that feels like a sort of dated term. It feels like old, old queers say they're genderqueer and like all the babies, all the like baby queers say that they're non-binary, right? That's like the sort of word that has um, taken up, uh, taken that spot in terms of like how we're self-describing. I'm an envy, they might say. Exactly. And from my <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Envies. Um, yeah, but genderqueer felt really expansive to me as a, as a identity. Like it felt like it was uh, saying like, not needing to be the idea that genderqueer was even a thing that was like, I don't identify as trans. I don't identify as like a trans man. I don't want to go towards the, in the direction of like the other end of this binary. But like, I also don't know that I don't identify with like womanhood as, as a concept or as an identity or as an expression. Like that's not, that's not where I see myself. I don't see myself. I don't fit there. Um, and so, yeah, they, them felt like it just sort of, um, opened things up for me in a way. And the other thing I would say about that is that um, I think before I changed, it's interesting like for me to track both how I've like publicly identified and asked for people to, to address me and, and identify me and how that has like um, tracked alongside uh, my own like gender expression. And that before I changed my name and my pronouns, I really felt a lot more pressure to present in a more masculine of center kind of way. Mm -hmm. I felt really like I had that, that, that my presentation was the way to assert that I was something other than a woman. And that if people didn't see me, uh, if they couldn't like visually see it, Mm -hmm. that then people would just assume, you know, I'm petite, mm -hmm. I'm like five, three, I have big boobs. Like I, I'm, my, my features are fine. Like I, people clock me as a woman or female assigned no matter what. Right. Mm -hmm. And so something about giving myself a name that didn't have a gender immediately assigned to it, right? Bear, what gender is that? And in fact, turns out many people assign it a male gender if they don't know me in advance. So there's, <laughs> right. so there's that, but that, um, yeah. And then the pronouns too, just like felt like they, they gave me this permission to actually just express my gender in whatever way I wanted to, because I had already asserted that I was something other than um, mm -hmm. she, her, other than woman, other than my old name. Um, and yeah, and it's been really interesting because I'm like, oh yeah, now I like wear a lot more lipstick these days. I wear a lot more earrings than I used to 10 years ago. Um, and I think a lot of that is because like the, the name and the pronouns just sort of like opened up some, some internal space of feeling like, people could understand me as how I wanted to be seen without me having to always be like presenting that image super hard to like prove it to anyone else. Hmm. That does open up possibility models. 
for me anyway, hearing your story. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. So I've really enjoyed a lot of your public sharing on Instagram. I've been very excited about um, having a, a real life conversation with you, um, especially the material you've shared in the last you know, six months or so on unlearning patriarchy and capitalism and whiteness has just really resonated with me a lot. Um, so obviously these are self-reinforcing and complementary systems, but in your view, is there one of those isms that kind of underpins the rest? That's such a good question. And um, it, like the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that is, um, is uh, bell hooks, right? And she talks about, um, she talks about the systems as not just like complementary, but actually interlocking um, and how there is there like one can't exist without the other. Um, and she uses this really sort of jargony phrase that's like white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. <laughs> well, I'm always saying that wrong then. I always start it with capitalist imperious white supremacist patriarchy. I guess if you interlock them, they all mean the same things. But I like that she punctuates it with patriarchy personally. Um, yeah, say more, please. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that, uh, I think that it really depends on like your school of thought. There are definitely like feminist Marxists who say that like capitalism is the root of the problem and that patriarchy and white supremacy are tools of capitalism. Um, but there are also ways that we can look at other economic systems that have continued to, um, perpetuate systems of dominance. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, and I don't know if bell hooks means that patriarchy is the central tenant. I mean, I kind of think maybe she does, but, um, <laughs> but I feel like the, you know, and, and also the, the other, like, um, the other uh, like argument in favor of capitalism as being the root of the thing. I'm, I'm sure you have read Caliban and the witch. Oh um, yes. Oh, right. But it's like, hands up for Sylvia Federici. Oh, seriously. God, the best book I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> Just like wrecked my life, but maybe totally because I could like look at everything from a much more um, just I just had the cultural analysis finally to be like oh this, anyway sorry yes okay. yes no I'm I'm with you it totally uh, changed things for me and actually I this this may be of interest to your listeners there's been a really uh, a great podcast um, book on from fire. the book on fire yes <laughs> you know okay <laughs> great <laughs> so if people have tried to read Caliban and the Witch and have failed many times, which was me. I was like, I have owned this book for 10 years, have never successfully read it, um, never successfully finished it. But that that podcast sort of walks you through chapter by chapter with like really um, sort of concise and easier to digest. Yes. Um, yeah. The so only, okay. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not slamming other podcasts. I have enjoyed that podcast. I just find that the fellow takes up a lot of time at the mic. And so I couldn't listen to it all. And actually, I am totally that person that reads nine tenths of a book. And then when I get to the last like chapter or two, I'm like, yeah, good. I got you the, the gist. And I hardly ever finish books. That is the one book that I just kind of slowly commit like mm. I, and it wasn't hard I it was I actually finished that book and it was a, a real rarity for me and I'm not saying that to brag I'm saying that for folks who think oh I never finish books I I I too never finish books but I did finish that one so whether it's podcast whether it's book club whether it's just doggedly with your post-it 
hashtags and your pencil to underline and just like somebody you could text to be like, what the fuck? When you like send them pictures <laughs> just to like, we had, we tried to have a book club where three of us got together and all we did was read a passage and go, what? Like, <laughs> that's all we did for an hour. So yeah, yeah sorry, carry on, please. No, I, I'm totally with you. Uh, but I feel like, I think the, the point being is that to me, there's like no real clear answer. I don't really know. I mean, and I, I think that like chipping away at all of them is really important. And also like, especially for white people, like just really um, being committed to the fact that like, I will never, I will, I will never see white supremacy fully. I will never see it clear as clearly as people who live on the, the other end of this system of oppression do. And like, so for me, staying really, keeping, keeping my work around unlearning whiteness really central to my own practice and seeing that also as like part of an interlocking, um, interlocking series of systems that are, that are working against us. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely, uh, I'm anti-capitalist, anti-patriarchy, anti-white supremacy <laughs> and all, you know, so like sort of positioned against all of them. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's easiest for white people to sort of like, uh, be like, oh, but that's, but no, you know, it's easiest to, to sort of put, put white supremacy aside. And, and so holding that as central, I think is really mm. crucial for my own work. That makes a lot of sense to me. I also would like to, I just don't want to go over it too quickly, but you mentioned um, black socialist feminists. And so I would like to just name and <laughs> This is so ironic. I would like to name a collective whose name I'm not sure how to pronounce. I'm going to say the Comahee River Collective, but is it Comahee? I, okay, yeah. Shoulders, also don't know. eyebrows, I don't know. Yeah, the Comahee River Co Collective. And uh, so as an anti-capitalist who came to um, understand white supremacy best through <laughs> kind of anti-capitalist work, kind of, you know, I think many of us do that, right? It's like, my husband understood patriarchy once he understood racism, you know? So uh, having read um, sort of a synopsis of the work of the Combahee River Collective, and I apologize that I'm forgetting the author's name. They have three names. And, uh, but they wrote a book called How We Get Free, mm. which is kind of a retrospective of their work and in interviews uh, with, with those black um, socialist feminists. And that, I, I finally kind of understood how the interlocking can have a different model and nothing ever get left out. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh gosh, that, so that I would just like to lift up as, as something that kind of tickles my little anti-capitalist heart, but is very much about um, how whiteness can, um, uh, white people can adopt sort of these moves to innocence in the name of undoing patriarchy or undoing capitalism, et cetera. You just, you can never underestimate how insidious whiteness is going to be in the movement, right? Yeah. Thank you. Um, Definitely. So what was the turning point then for you in your life when you decided to like publicly activate for change and dismantling systems of oppression? Like was there a thing, a sensitizing event, or was there an environment that kind of shaped this for you? Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like my, <laughs> when I think about this question of like, how did I become 
how did I, how did this happen to me, <laughs> for me? Because like, you know, I grew up in, in like a small city in South Louisiana, like extremely segregated, like extremely uh, conservative, Catholic, um, you know, very uh, sort of like American family values kind of vibe. Um, and my family is that way. They still are um, for by and large. Um, and I really, I mean, I have to, I, I, who, who knows why we end up the way we do, but um, there was just like a series of things that happened at a, at a really like pivotal point in my life that, uh, that I think really sort of like radicalized me and changed me in a way that was like irrevocable. Um, the first being that I started figuring out that I was queer when I was like 16, right? So that was like a piece of things like starting to untangle from the ideas of like how the world is and how I had to be inside of it. Um, and then I'm, I'm almost 37 now. So 9-11 happened when I was a senior in high school. And that felt like the first time that I ever really had a sense of like global politics and like imperialism and like the United States as a war machine and like all of these kinds of things that I had not really been grappling with as like a kid in the South and, and the nineties. So that was like not part of my, you know, I don't know, not part of, and my family is like a military family. My, my grandparents, all, all of all of my grandparents were in the military. So it's like, yeah. you know, just this like very kind of, um, sort of as like, um, white bread, American flag waving, <laughs> like Southern family, as, as you could imagine, that's, that's my, that's my people. <laughs> um, yeah. And so 9-11 really sort of like broke things open for me in this way that, that I started like see, just seeing the world differently and sort of understanding my place in it really differently. Um, yeah. And then I moved to New Orleans, uh, in college and then Hurricane Katrina happened. So mm you know, it was like 9-11 in, in 2001 and then Katrina in 2005. And I had already started to kind of grapple with whiteness and, and race because of stuff I was learning in college. And which also I'm like, when, when I look at like, how did I end up this way? And the rest of my family is the way they are. I'm like a first generation college goer in my family. So just like, you know, um, school schooling education was like real I'm not really an academic but like I do have a bachelor's degree and I'm sort of like ah oh, cool that's like, you know that's like <laughs> yeah different than lots of people that I know um yeah but Katrina really I mean living in New Orleans I I like you know I evacuated and my life was affected in all kinds of ways but also it became so 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 undeniably clear the way that um the way that racism was systemic it was not just like individual prejudice between two people. It was like all the black people are having a much harder time of this situation than pretty much all the white people. And we can like start to look at the ways that that like sh shook down in the, the years of aftermath of like rebuilding the city and, you know, the ways that the city is so much whiter now. New Orleans is so much whiter population wise than it, than it ever has been. And, um, so much of that is because of systemic racism and, and particularly like anti-blackness that has just like um, kept people from returning, kept people from being able to, kept black people from being able to return and recover and, and rebuild here in the ways that they might have otherwise. And wow. yeah, that was just a really sort of, when I think about like what changed my, what changed my vision about the world, like that's the, that's the sort of thing. Wow. Um, and so did you have teachers show up at the right time like you know the the student was ready and so <laughs> who who became your influencers as you were becoming radicalized 
I mean, I think for a long time, I, I didn't really have, uh, how do I explain this? I had, I had so much trauma history that I didn't get close to anyone for a really long time. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's like, it's sort of funny to me now. Cause now, cause now that, cause that's no longer true. But like back then I was just sort of like real sort of running solo and not really deep in any kind of like activist organizer community sort of like skirted around things learned a lot of stuff but like didn't really get didn't I didn't have a lot of mentors and teachers for a long time mm -hmm. um yeah I mean I think uh when I think about like who are who are my uh who are my like um intellectual teachers and guides i'm like okay bell hooks okay james baldwin you know okay nikki giovanni the poet like for some random reason there um <laughs> it's like a random side story but uh when i was in middle school a barnes and noble opened in my town and it was like this like gateway to culture for me as like mm -hmm. a small city working class kid like this store that had books that like they didn't have at the li the public library yeah. um because they carried like a nationally curated selection of books. And so anyway, I would like go on Friday nights and like get a, get a coffee at the, at the um, Starbucks that was also the first Starbucks in our town, like, um, and go and sit in the poetry section and the art book section and just like get my mom to drop me off at the, at the Barnes and Noble and just like spend evenings there by myself or with my best friend and just like read wow. books. And there are like anyway. so many people falling in love with you right now. Who are <laughs> my small town and had that I would have done that too <laughs> right I mean, <laughs> if I had yeah I would have yeah yeah it was really it was really such a uh, such a saving grace but yeah but the um but the, uh, Nikki Giovanni collected poetry book came out in the late 90s and it was like on the end cap at the aisle and I was like whoa <laughs> who's that like you know like short cropped hair like black badass looking woman sitting on a stool I just was like that person looks I want to read this. <laughs> um, yeah, so now I feel you're like my friend. I <laughs> will like, carry me and Nikki going everywhere with this book of poetry in my backpack. Am I getting that right? Was that like pretty, mu pretty much to yourself? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and just being like, I'll hand you my like babysitting money over the counter to like buy this book. You know? Aww, yeah. That's yeah. Um, yeah, and and so. I, like I said, I like didn't, I didn't study any of this stuff in school. My girlfriend in college was a um, women's and gender studies major. So I like was sort of like reading all her, all her homework over her shoulder with her. Like that's how I learned any of the stuff that I learned. I like never have taken a college class about any of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I've done a ton of self, self work and self education and kind of like community work and, you know, book groups and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. The other author I wanted to name was Lillian Smith, who's a uh, white Southern lesbian writer um, who wrote a book called Killers of the Dream. Um, she was around like in the uh, the like first half of the 20th century and um, really writing from a super radical ahead of her time place about white Southern identity and, and uh, sort of like what it means to be um, against uh, white supremacy as a white Southerner. So, wow. That must have been very eye-opening. Can I just clarify too, when you say your family was military and flag-waving, was that, were there any like Dixie flags in your family? No. No, no. I think they, they definitely, 
it's interesting actually the way that like mili the like military influence because I guess because the military had integrated when my grandfather was in the military so there was this mm -hmm. sense of like the military as this place that was um like above the the like racist norms of the rest of the country or at least at the mm -hmm. rest of the south mm -hmm. um and so I think my family actually sort of as you said, like making moves towards innocence, like I feel like my family really saw themselves as like explicitly like not racist, even mm. though they were explicitly racist. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. like, but definitely sort of position themselves as like um as as not being that way. Yeah. Mm. And so we're not like Confederate flag waving kind of um kind of vibe, but uh but definitely but more genteel. Of, yeah. <laughs> I mean gen genteel maybe, but just sort of like I think sort of like aspirational working class, like mm -hmm. not actually genteel, but like working class and like aspiring towards that kind of gentility. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I feel that I feel that as, as you know, I would would have been the the first hope for somebody to graduate uh, college in my family. I still can't do it. Too much hierarchy, capitalism. <laughs> Damn it! Why do I need so many of these stupid prerequisites? Yeah, still yeah. haven't done it. Um, and yeah, I'm sure nobody um, in in like certain quarters of my family would uh, say they were racist. There, I, my drinky dad, he for sure like he was absolutely blatant. But everybody else could say, oh. Pfft you know, come on now, that's extreme. Whereas all their behaviors were like absolutely 100% racist, segregated, superior. But now that I look back at it, it's like, oh, because of class. <laughs> like I get you now. Like, And a lot of the things that I at the time was sensitive to as a young person who was like, you know, uh, very vocally and like, visibly emotionally anti-racist in my in my household the only one i thought uh were, were different forms of overt racism when i look back now i think oh mm, that actually that was me not seeing that was um that was classism so like when mm. my aunt would say oprah thinks she's so fancy she was not thinking oh you know like because she's black and you know quote uppity she she was like oh that's a rich person not understanding of course of course there's whiteness in there of course they're like interlocking together but i see now that i separated those two things now i look back and i think oh her her particular wound that she was leading with there was class the, yeah. the whiteness part was much more subtle that's really interesting to me i feel like i just this, like, just this summer, like this, in the last six months or so, I feel like I've started to, to like, uncover a new level of my own class-based wounds mm -hmm. um, that I think part of keeping, like, whiteness central and being really sure not to, um, not to look away from that has, like, actually, uh, like, I think there's a real sort of conflation of, like, all white experience, but that, like, actually for white poor people and white working class people, we, like, I had a really wildly different upbringing than many of my friends, mm -hmm. um, particularly many of my friends who I now share, like, a political um, analysis with, right, um, and that that, like, there, there was, like, real harm done to me and done to my family because of capitalism, because of class strata, stratification, and, like, I think for a long time to be like a good white person meant to like make sure you were never sort of like using class as an excuse not to look at race. Mm -hmm. But I feel like for the last like 15 years, I've been looking at race and really not like not looking at class. I've been looking at class in like a 
um, cultural and sort of structural way, but have not done nearly as much of my own kind of personal work around how my class experiences have affected me. So mm -hmm. it's still very new for me too. But I, one thing that I've been noticing lately is, uh, and this is when I say lately, I mean, in the last 10 years, um, but like <laughs> particularly it's come up this year is, um, yeah, I went to a private high school on a bursary and so, which is, you know, um, here anyway in Canada, that's financial needs based. And, you know, they like wanted me because I was a good all rounder, but I wasn't a scholarship student, right? I wasn't that smart, but I brought some other stuff, some, some charm, some je ne sais quoi, <laughs> some, something. <laughs> and so, so I was able to go on, on bursary, so a financial need. Um, and just going to that private school for a few years, was, it was kind of like a finishing school. So there was no college money left, like just the small amount to go to that private school. That was kind of it. It was grade like 10 to 12. That was like, that's what you get. Um, but when I look back now, I see, oh yeah, that was supposed to launch me out of this kind of working class, you know, and I did, I managed to like, you know, through debt, uh, appear to enter the middle class fairly, you know, um, easily. But when I look back now, I think, uh, you know, in the great recession and my uh, business was wiped out, I underwent a personal bankruptcy. I was like depressed for a few years. It was like such a shock to my identity because I'd been sold, but I was in the middle class and there would, but guess what? When you're like working class, there's no like parents who can now help you out. There's no aunt or uncle. There's no generational wealth coming, rolling downhill. So I look back now and I think, you know, I didn't finish college. I couldn't afford it no matter what it like. And also how many of those people also had to declare bankruptcy in a recession that I had gone to high school with? Like, I'm, I'm going to say none or a very, very small percentage. And they probably would have been the bursary kids. It just, you know, it's like, oh, class. So then of course, yeah, you spend a couple of years and so much trauma and therapy and, and guess what? Now I can talk about the interlocking systems of oppression, not because of education, because of fucking therapy and like <laughs> self-healing, right? Therapizing yes. my experience of economic trauma, of, you know, coming to terms with whiteness and all of these things. It's like, no, it's, it's through uh, books and therapy and finding people who, who, who are speaking this language. But this, these, these terms are not things that I, you know, have gone to school for, or, you know, bell hooks didn't come to me on a reading list. Like, you know, so yeah, I really, I, I really get that. So, so what would you say then is the most important quality for people then to embrace or like practice we're on when they're in this like self-education process that is actually about unlearning dominance and oppression. And I, I want to kind of frame this out for listeners because, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of different um, ways to take that question, but it's like, is there a best place to start? Especially if you're a white person, like, is it cultivating humility? Is it, should you start with trauma sensitivity? So, you know, should you start with just openness. And the reason I ask is because, you know, you could be really open and humble, but if you aren't trauma-informed, then there's like a really high likelihood that as a white person, you're going to do harm as you're trying to unlearn the things that, you know, perpetuate harm. Or you could be really trauma-informed and like really um, open-hearted, open-minded, but if you aren't humble, 
you are highly likely to be harmful. So as we're fumbling around trying to self-educate and unlearn these interlocking systems of oppression, is there something that you think is a good place to start? Like maybe it's resilience. What, what do you, where do you think people should start? I, I don't know where anybody else should start. <laughs> Uh, but I feel like the place that really, like the, the thing that really changed things for me was coming to a realization that I'm, I, I am not above the work. Um, and that I, I don't, um, sort of like a letting go of like linearity in the work and like a letting go, which again, it's like uh, letting go of that sort of like moving towards personal innocence as a motivator. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and really, like, I feel like the place that I really got serious about a commitment to, um, to anti-oppression's work in a public way in, you know, in a more sort of uh, willing to take real risks kind of way um, was when I really got clear about the fact that, like, uh, that, that I'm, I'll never be done. Um, that, like, as long as these systems are in place, that I'm never, I'm never done. Um, because I think for a long time before that, unconsciously or otherwise, there was a real sense of like trying to prove myself, trying to like prove something, trying to prove my goodness, my innocence, my, um, my good intentions. And that, that as a motivator is really, um, it's sort of an exercise in futility, right? Like you can, cause, and then as has been stated by lots of, uh, smarter and more experienced people than me that like then you get people who I was one for a, for for some time and and whatever maybe I, maybe I still am now but like sort of spoke the language without really um without really like having having done the personal work to like see myself as fully implicated um I don't know I don't know if you saw this uh, I keep thinking about this this like series of tweets that was that I saw reposted on Instagram because that's like because <laughs> I'm only like yeah <laughs> and also I'm only like marginally on Twitter so I'm like I actually see more Twitter content through Instagram than I do through Twitter but <laughs> um there was this like series of, of tweets with Angela about Angela Davis and I I should I should find the what they actually are so I can quote it appropriately but basically somebody had asked her about how, how colorism and how her light skin privilege had like affected her life. And she was like, oh yeah, it absolutely affected my life. And, you know, has like given me lots of benefit, you know, and the person asked her like, um, what are you, what are you doing about that? And she answered back, like, honestly, not enough. Like I can never, as long as these systems continue to pers persist, I can never claim that I'm doing enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt like that was such a sort of like self-loving way to be with the truth, you know, that just like, mm -hmm. as long as these systems, as long as these systems persist, like none of us can claim that we're doing enough, you know, which mm -hmm. doesn't mean burn yourself out, doesn't mean work yourself to the bone, doesn't mean whatever, but like, um, but really being clear about the fact that like the work isn't done mm -hmm. until it's, until it's really done. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and you're reminding me of um, what is, what has been kind of a, a happy influence, we could say, from these um, uprisings and the racial uprisings in America that have led to um, a, sort of some amplification and some volume around abolitionism, which is something kind of, I, for many years, I sort of sat with like, 
you know, I'm anti-war, but I could also understand um, capital punishment in some situations. Like I was kind of like, I have a very tense relationship with like certain crimes. And so I'm not sure. But I was very interested uh, in the abolitionist movement after watching this movie, and it was probably in the 90s or early 2000s, called The Farm. And it was like about the, I think it was about basically like the prison industrial complex in the United States. It was this documentary. And uh, I was like astonished, you know, growing up in like essentially, I grew up in an area where um, I, I'm sure I didn't see a black person in real life until I was a teenager. Um, and so, seeing that kind of uh, scale of modern day slavery was like really shocking. So I kind of sat with this like tension for quite a long time, but it was in the back of my mind. I didn't really have to think about it. Now having abolitionism as, as a, you know, it's in our vernacular now. It's like, oh, this is fantastic. And I'd seen the 13th and, you know, movie, Ava DuVernay and all that stuff. But what I've noticed is it has provided a container for conversations around call-out culture and how we police each other and ourselves. And I, I can really see some relationship here with how many um, moves to innocence and, and like how many folks that are motivated um, to, you know, credentialize themselves and, you know, um, speak the language, even if they're not doing the work, prove themselves as good, those, those behaviors you're talking about, it's because we're afraid of each other. <laughs> we're afraid of, you know, the policing that happens. And it, I've just found that to be such a, 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 an interesting blossoming conversation about how we police ourselves and each other. And if we're going to be abolitionist, then what does that mean for how we hold ourselves when we, we, we can't possibly ever be doing enough? And yes, there may be huge blind spots where it's like, okay, it's time for you to be doing more, <laughs> you know, for sure. But um, I, anyway, so I, I I'm like dropping that, how we police ourselves in here. And I'm curious, like what your thoughts are on, yeah. on, on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that as a framing. I mean, yeah, that's so, that's so interesting. I, I like, it's so wild, right? Because like I grew up in, like I said, in South Louisiana, which like Louisiana is the, um, it's like the prison capital, uh, like has a higher per capita um, incarceration rate than any other state in the United States. The U.S. has a higher incarceration rate than any other country in the world, right? So I like grew up sort of in the heart of the thing. And I, I also did not have any awareness of that until I was, until I was like in college um, and started, you know, becoming politically aware and it was like oh wow 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 this is happening like literally an hour from where I live like Angola penitentiary which is like yeah, you know might have been what the, that might have been what the yeah, farm yeah, that's, was about that's that's what <laughs> when you said that I was like oh right that's about Angola right which is that's like right. literally literally a plantation that then just so when they talk about like you know like modern day the prison industrial system being modern day slavery it's like yeah we actually completely literally, literally was a plantation now is a prison and it's like wow. it's like real people's lives you know and yeah and to be to have that be so close and yet so hidden and so sort of covert in this way that like um many white people anyway can sort of move through the world without ever being um without ever knowing that they are personally affected by that or that that's happening right there mm -hmm. even when it's like in immediate close proximity so um, i'm sure there are many people who are white right now who are like 
so that's me hand up right <laughs> like i can move through the world without ever being touched by the prison industri- industrial complex so pro- then the next question as a well-intentioned white person is but what would i do right and of course i can educate myself and i can like figure out who's doing stuff locally um i i bet you get this all the time but what do i but what do i do <laughs> about things and so what do you say to white people two-minute mid-roll break from the heavy questions. If you're interested in visioning your year ahead for 2021 with me, I'm hosting my annual Intuitive Business and Life Planning Workshop on September 26th. It's a day-long online workshop where we call in our guides to help us map out the next year's activities. We do trance journey work to enlist support and seek guidance, and I teach three different methods for intuitive decision-making, including pendulum charts, somatic attunement, and crafting an oracle card calendar. If you're not an entrepreneur, it's no problem. You can definitely apply this workshop to any aspect of your life. And if you can't attend all of the sessions that day, don't worry. They'll be recorded. You can watch or listen later in your own time. Cost to register is just 75 bucks Canadian, and you can do so on my website at carmenspaniola.com. This is by far my most frequently requested workshop, and it has the most repeat attenders. Like people have been coming to this workshop when I had it in person and also when I've done it online, sometimes every year. Sometimes they come every year for like five to seven years. What am I talking about? No, seven to eight years. Anyway, it's part of kind of our annual autumn rhythm of forecasting and planning to work harmoniously with the energy flows in the year ahead. So it's not about hustle here. It's about getting into a collaborative rhythm with the universe and your allies and ancestors and your personal energy levels and alignment with your gifts and purpose. And it's so fun. So September 26th, 75 bucks. Check it out on the work with me page at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. I mean, that was such a big question. I think I, like my first answer is always like, listen to the leadership of black people right. <laughs> around issues that affect them, you know, which is like, it's like, I guess maybe it could sound like a cop out, but the, the truth is like, I don't, I don't know. And I don't, I can't know, you know, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean that it's not my responsibility to stay engaged or to stay aware or to, to like stay involved. But, um, but yeah, but, but really, um, knowing that our job is not to sort of like come in and and be like, I know how to fix this, you know, like, which I think is, it can be so, so well-meaning and yet so destructive. Mm -hmm. Um, Same as we should, you know, convene a a conversation about, et cetera. Let's talk about this harm that's being perpetuated and we should make it diverse. It's like, now I'm starting to understand because I've been that person who's like, we need to diversify. We need to bring in more voices. And now I get what, you know, Desiree Attaway and Jessica Fish say in their whiteness at work program, right? It's like, instead of diversifying your organization's job number Number one is get better white people. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh shit. Yeah. yeah. Because I've been that person who, well intentioned, I'm just learning. I want to, you know, truth reconciliation. Let's get more voices. And then guess who gets hurt? And right. so I actually am kind of like drifting more towards no caucuses, which, which is counterintuitive. It's, it's like, oh, we should segregate ourselves to, to deal with this. Right. It's like, well, not entirely, but that should be perhaps one pathway. <laughs> yeah. that you hold right what, what do you think of that in terms of like white caucusing uh around issues of race yeah I mean I feel like I've learned 
so, so, so much from white caucus spaces with other, like with, with yeah, so much of, of my education has happened around race has happened in, in white caucus space. And um, yeah, I think two things come to mind. One is just, I, I could have named this, I guess, in the sort of like, who are my teachers, but there's an organization called Alternate Roots, um, R-O-O-T-S, that is an, a Southern artist activist organization. And that organization has like taught me so much about how to be in, um, how to be in relationship with people, <laughs> just like in general. Um, you know, that's a, the, your, your question before about like, um, accountability and, and like, uh, you know, calling, calling in, calling out, calling ourselves out, holding ourselves accountable. I feel like that organization has taught me so much about how to, um, how to like fuck up and then have it, have it not be the end of things, you know, for how there to be like, that? what's an example? I mean, just that like, so the, the, there's an annual in non COVID times, there's like an annual meeting that happens. That's basically like adult artist activist summer camp. That's like a week long sort of beautiful, um, little microcosm ecosystem of my most beautiful vision for the future. It's like the most diverse space that I'm ever in, um, in all the ways, right. Racially in terms of age, religion, disability, uh, sexuality, gender, like all the things, um, and they really, I mean, they, they're an organization that's been around for 40 plus years and they really have like modeled what it looks like to, to sort of like get it wrong as a group and then to like stay in it together and to like mm. carry on. I mean, you know, there's so many examples from just like somebody said something offensive on the microphone at the, you know, evening meeting. And then we're going to like talk about that and debrief and, and have some, have some caucus spaces to like talk about our feelings about it and then have some like group process together, you know. And then also like on an organizational level, like what I know about the history of that organization is like, you know, it was founded by a multiracial group of theater makers and, and part of what um, part of what happened over time is that the, the membership uh, became whiter, white, whiter <laughs> uh, as, as time went on. And at a certain point in the 90s, they were like, oh shit, this is not how we want this to be. And so then there was like, they realized that something was going wrong and then they were like, cool, now what do we do about it? Like, how do we change it? And so they put like programs into place to, um, you know, to prioritize, uh, to prioritize us, particularly like young black artists to be able to come and be part of the organization and um, both like really worked on an infrastructural level to like make things better. And also we're committed to doing the kind of like internal interpersonal aspects of things and and it's really changed the organization it's like now like I said when I entered into you know when I like first showed up in that space maybe in 2012 or 2013 it was like oh yeah this is like actually a space where lots of people can where 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 lots of people from a variety of different intersecting constellational identities can be together can be fully human can hold each other with a lot of love can fuck up and know that they're not going to be sort of like excommunicated um, straight away, right? That Gosh, it's like, this is yeah. amazing. I have so many questions and I don't know if these are too thick. Okay. Here's my three questions that are, I could just probably Google them, but I think other people are curious. So first of all, how many people are in this organization? Second of all, what's the leadership structure like? And third of all, is it still happening over zoom? <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't actually know what the, what the total number, I mean, somewhere in the, in the thousands in terms of wow. the total leader, in, t in terms of the total membership, but mm -hmm. who's at those, there's maybe, I think maybe like 400 people at the annual meeting. So it's like a, you know, it's a tiny village. little group. Mm -hmm. It's a village. It's totally a village. Um, 
the leadership structure is, uh, you know, it's a participatory democracy and it's also like got a, you know, it's got an executive director and, and then like people, it's kind of like re regular nonprofit structure gotcha. um, in terms of its, its leadership. Um, but a lot of the meetings, a lot of the work of the organization is done through, um, through working groups hmm. and, uh, you know, the meet all year, not just at the annual meeting. And then, um, and then, yes, it is the, the actually this year, the, the whole meeting is happening over uh, instead of just five days. It's like spread out over the course of like five weekends, I think, of Zoom calls um, that are both performances, visual art speakers, and also the business meeting aspect of the meeting. So um, actually, this year is a great uh, year for people who are not involved already to like dip a toe in and see if they if they find resonance with the organization. But Wow. Um, we'll put that yeah. in the show notes for yeah. sure. We can put that in the show notes. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about diversity just really quickly is that um, I'm totally with you about like people prioritizing diversity over, over actually doing the work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I could like tell a whole other story about teaching yoga and what that was like and, and trying to diversify my mostly white yoga classes and how that, how that did and did not go well uh, for everyone involved. Um, but the, the thing that I really think about a lot around diversity is, um, is like a concept uh, that is from Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, who wrote a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the yes. Cafeteria? Um, and she writes about diversity as the after effect of a lifelong commitment to the self-named struggles of people of color. And I'm maybe like butchering that quote a little bit, like that's a paraphrase, but, but the gist of it is that like the deeper you become, the deeper committed you become to, to this, as she describes, the self-named struggles of people of color, what they say are their struggles. And the more we as white people become committed to those things, then your life like, um, like, evolves towards more diversity and it doesn't have to be this thing that's like oh I'm gonna like go and try to make a token black friend or like whatever so that yes. um right but that it just like naturally occurs over time and the way to get there is not by like seeking out black people to like fill your diversity voids but to like actually get really committed to the work of of undoing white supremacy and, and undoing anti-blackness and you know I, et cetera et cetera so well and what a concise way to describe the last 15 years of my life um, because it's so so true I mean I also have an exact story of a, a a very similar story of when I was the community leader of a, um, an event that celebrated um, a rite of passage for girls age 10 to 12 entering adolescence and uh, I, they, there were a lot of stated diversity goals, uh, but it came from a larger metropolis, a larger cosmopolitan city. So bringing it to my city, which is essentially segregated, I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, do my best to create authentic relationships to, you know, diversify. And as you said, um, I could tell a whole long story of how that did and did not go well for everyone involved. <laughs> and so, so, and yet the, the year I spent in stoic therapy after that, <laughs> which is like literal counseling with a, a registered counselor who also happened to be a stoic therapist or a stoic philosopher, like literally it was, it was so much uh, trauma from what I did and efforts to repair that didn't 
go anywhere. And also all the things that were very legitimately, but sometimes illegitimately projected onto me. It was just like, oh my God, this is a huge shit show. But ha having gone through that, you know, massive three-year shit storm, um, I look at my life now and it, it seems like I could almost say in air quotes effortlessly, <laughs> my life is so much more diverse now. And I was reading something about uh, look at people's wedding photographs to see if they're actually doing this work. I don't know where I saw that, it was probably on Instagram. Uh, and it's like, yeah, so I've been married for 10 years. And if I were to have my wedding today, it would look very different than my wedding photos would have looked then. So yeah, I just, I really get, I really resonate with, with what you're saying. So in your experience then, okay, we, we're, we're kind of dancing around. We, we talked about culture, culture a little bit, but we're also talking about the, um, the trauma of, of racial conflict, right? Obviously, um, people of color and quite specifically black people because of anti-blackness. It was kind of like <laughs> that underpins really all racism. I think Resma Menachem talks about like colorism and it's like racism is a spectrum and anti-blackness kind of underpins it all. Um, and so naturally I, I totally recognize people of color, black people specifically as um, the most harmed in that situation and like who among us is not downstream from a couple of world wars, you had parents in the military, you, had, you know. Um, so how, how do we balance awareness that trauma can make our trigger to response ratio a bit out of whack, right? We can be pretty vigilant with the notion that like working towards resilience and like rupture and repair processes are, are like also really important parts of healing, you know, and, and having those skills like that organization you talked about, alternative roots, like it, it, it adds momentum to movements. It adds longevity if, if we can have those. So I, I do, I, I'm trying to ask a question here about call out culture again, in a sense, but it's also a question of like attachment theory and collective practice. Like how do we stay in relationship with people we love who also hurt us hurt each other when we have hurt and harmed? Um, and then like in what kind of circumstance do you cut off contact? And what do we do about situations where because of the intersectionality, you know, like I as a white person am not gonna say, I think maybe in this situation you're projecting onto me. And you know, like all of the experiences you've, you've had, I personally get that like I'm okay with reparations. I get that as a white person, I owe a debt to people of color. So I'm willing to take on more than my fair share of somebody's trauma response, let's say. Um, and then how do we discern when it's like, okay, this is a, we need to stay with the trouble with each other. And when we're like, nope, <laughs> caucus or nope, cut off, I, I, I'd love, I think you know what I'm trying to ask. It's like, how do we stay in this messy place? And what are some kind of like decision trees we could use? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love, I love this question. And I love that it's, um, that it's not a concise sort of like straightforward question because I feel like that actually really speaks to the complexity of doing, <laughs> doing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, you know, I think for, for me, um, well, there's so many places I could start. I guess the, the thing that I'll say first is that I, I'm not one of those people that's like my, tra my trauma was a gift. Like I don't, I actually am sort of like when people say <laughs> shit like that, but, but at this point in my healing process, I can now see that there are some, some of the, some of the things that I learned to do to survive my own trauma have like become it through my own healing process have become gifts. Um, and I feel like one of the, one of the gifts of my, of my own kind of like, um, survival strategy is survival strategies from childhood is like really, really, really knowing in my, like in my heart, in my bones, in my soul, like how to love someone who has harmed me, how to love someone who is harming me <laughs> and like how to hold that at the same time. Um, yeah. And so I, I feel like that's like, I, I feel really sort of, um, I feel like excited by the, by that reality in some ways, which like, again, if you had asked me this five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, I would have been like, fuck off. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't owe anybody anything. But like now where I, I land with things is that I really, really desire like reintegration and reconnection um, for people who have caused harm, right? Because that's all of us because that's everyone. Um, and I, I think that the, the tricky thing is that like, I can desire reintegration and reconnection for the people who have harmed me without having to desire that with them. Right. That like, yeah. I want for the people who have harmed me, for the people who have like caused me trauma to experience reintegration into a community. I want them to experience reconnection with self and with spirit and there may be times and there there are currently times where like i personally do not need to be part of that reintegration or reconnection process with them um i love that that oh i'm really like i feel relief in my body as you say that like ah spaciousness <laughs> right which is like it's such a i mean i think that's like such a for me that that being able to release that it is not my that I can like both desire that for someone and not take it on as my personal responsibility to be involved in providing them with it like that's so much tied up in um codependency patterns that are reinforced by patriarchy and being assigned female like all of this kind of stuff about like whose job is it to make sure that everyone's emotional needs are met and taken care of like as a female assigned person, I feel like that's like definitely been part of my path of unlearning and particularly as a female assigned person with the kind of like trauma history that I have that I'm just like, oh, right. Like so much of what I did my whole life was just like make sure everyone else was okay, you know, and like, um, and now being able to, to say like my, my heart can hold this desire for you and I don't need to be the one that gives it to you. Like you, mm. I can like trust that you, you can, can get there on your own. Um, mm. That's actually also speaking to that like tiny little fragment that like molecular aspect of me, when I say molecular, like it's as small as just a couple molecules uh, that used to take up a lot more of my, um, I don't know, maybe like my political thought, kind of the, the way I was raised uh, around, like I mentioned earlier, like capital punishment for certain crimes that it was like, I could accept in certain scenarios, but actually that 
that isn't the world that I want to live in at all. Now that I understand power, <laughs> now that I understand yeah. like the, the how corrupt the the uh, interlocking systems of oppression are, it's like no fucking way can anybody say who lives or dies. Like just no. Um, and then, then like the the kind of like wealth. But what do you do with violent offenders? Then it's like, oh look, uh, there you've just like articulated. Like, I still want them to heal. I I don't know how that works. But guess what? There are people who are really interested in helping them to heal, <laughs> and they like devote themselves to it. And and then there's all these other people who like make art about it in movies and you know like <laughs> Dead Man Walking or something you know like there are people who clearly have been into this for a long time so I, I can like unhook from that as like um, a roadblock on my mental like my cognitive um, uh, sort of coherence it's like it doesn't have to all be perfect and I don't have to know how it all happens, but I can know that I, I would still like that for everyone. And that's like mm. a pretty extreme situation, but like, I, I'm going to put this one to you then. How do you, so like, if that's the most extreme situation, how do you hold, um, you know, let's say artists and creatives who have perpetuated harm, you know, it could be as grotesque as, you know, Weinstein or something. But I, I mean, I just heard Oliver Stone on CBC being an ass about like how Hollywood's a meritocracy. And like, of course, women have had all the chances. I, I was okay, like click, turned it off. <laughs> but it's like, so, so how do you um, navigate that kind of philosophy of, of repair, of healing, of inclusion, around folks who um, are not actually trying to be a community who do not see the problem and like maybe they're creatives who've made really great work and you're really disappointed in them now do you still like read their books watch their movies I like I it's funny because I actually don't have a strong feeling about that about that question and I know that's like a thing that people that seems to be a really polarizing oh ask people who are into Harry Potter right now oh my gosh yeah. JK Rowling it's I, I was never I haven't read the books. Sorry. I know. I've actually, that's funny that you bring that up because I actually, at the beginning of quarantine, I started listening to the audiobooks for the first time ever. I'm like 30 years late, 25 years late, but I was like, this seems like a fun project. So I'm, I still haven't read them all, but, um, but I'm working on it. And yeah, the JK Rowling thing was definitely a, a moment, but, um, I listen to them for free on the library app. And so I'm not giving JK Rowling any of my money. And, you know, that's sort of the, that's the, the place that I've come to around it. I mean, I don't know, I, like, it makes me think about, um, I, I, I'm not answering your question, I'm answering a, a, a parallel question, but like, I feel like there was like a, a meme that went around on online that was like, if I'm still friends with your abuser on Facebook, let me know and I'll no longer be friends with that person or whatever. And I just like, to me, that's like kind of, I just am like, I don't, I'm so, I, to me, that does not seem like um, a sustainable long-term strategy towards moving towards <laughs> repair. Um, and I, I think there's really a, um, I don't know, I, I, the, the, the place that I like first started having these thoughts was actually in a zine from an organization called Philly Stands Up um, that, uh, that has now, I think is like sort of in the, in the, um, in the ether again, because they're in a book, a new book called Beyond Survival. That's like stories from the transformative justice movement. But Philly stands up, uh, 
was like a, an organization that, that was like co-founded alongside another organization called Philly's Pissed in Philadelphia, uh, if you hadn't guessed that from the names of them <laughs> already, around um, instances of sexual assault sort of in this like punk DIY artist community. And Philly's Pissed was like helmed mostly by women and female assigned people. And then Philly Stands Up was this like, um, was this like uh, parallel organization that was working directly with perpetrators of sexual assault. And, I, and they put out a zine, I don't know, in the, in the mid-2000s that, that, that ended up in the, the collective house that I lived in and uh, read that zine and just was like mind blown that there was like not only someone who was advocating that rapists should not be like excommunicated, but like, that actually like resources should be put towards their rehabilitation. And that was like such a wild um, mindset shift for me and really... Yeah, in fact, we should probably just pause for a moment. Just to let listeners, especially listeners who've been harmed by sexual violence, to just like let their bodies catch up to that, right? Because it's like, whoa. I mean, there's the part of you that's like, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Like, of course, we'd, I'd way rather rehabilitate than somehow, I mean, especially since rape is like one of the least prosecuted crimes. So like, rather than somebody be out there perpetuating this harm, we get that. But in the body... There can be so much um, rage and anger. And, and I just want to say to anybody who's like having stuff come up right now, like I'm with you and feel your feet and feel your seat. And, and like, let's stay mobilized, bringing on arms and legs, right? Because I would really like to hear, Bear, like, how are they doing that? Like, how are they? I mean, that does sound reasonable. Allocate resources to people who need healing. Who, like, who would we like to heal? <laughs> people who are perpetuating violence. Like, yeah, please say more. Yeah, thank you for that pause. I, I, my body needed it too. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak too much about it, too much about the particular work of that organization, since it's not one that I've personally engaged with. And it's just one that I've like read about in, in a secondhand kind of way, thirdhand kind of way. Um, but the, I mean, the, the philosophy of it, I think is one that, that felt really, um, yeah, just felt really radical to me in the in the truest meaning of that word, like to grasp something at the root. Mm -hmm. I'm like, right, what is the root of rape culture? Like what is the root of the of of this problem, you know, that mm -hmm. is like so, so, so many people are harmed by. And it's like, right, right. Mm -hmm. Um and we can go slow, right? Like it reminds yeah. me of um uh Nora Sammer and Navas Molash, uh, the, the work on, um, well, the, the original essay was The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture, culture, and the book is Turn This World Inside Out. Um, fantastic, right? And, and much as I loved the article when it came out, I was still kind of pissed because then, of course, my husband moved pretty quickly to, oh, my patriarchy, I need soothing. <laughs> and it was like, okay, so yes, and you need therapy for that. And you need friends for that. And you need you and you need and you need, you know, and we need a couple therapists for that. All of these things remain true. But we can go slow and ensure that the, you know, um, uh, the person who was, um, who suffered the harm gets to their need met as well. And I, I, 
even just want to remind everyone about what you said earlier, Bear, about like, and they don't necessarily have to be involved in the rehabilitation. Yeah, you're like, no, no, ex nay. Yeah, yeah, that the, and that those two organizations, like Philly's Pissed and Philly Stands Up, like operated the way that they did as these separate organizations, because it was like both these things need to happen and they, may, they maybe don't need to happen together. Mm -hmm. um, and that that, that really, um, yeah, it's really, it's really complicated, right? It's mm -hmm. really complicated. And I, I think that there's such a, as a survivor of various types of harm myself, I feel like I, I feel in my body that desire for like, retribution is like too intense of a word, but like catharsis yes. around the harm that has come to me, right? And mm -hmm. to like, want to like, get it out of me, right? Mm -hmm. And that that the so much of the like systems of domination have taught us that the way to like to to experience that catharsis is by like putting it onto someone else putting it onto the person who you know which of course like hello that is like yeah, how well, cycles of abuse right yeah exactly and right. cycles back to whiteness like the first people we perpetuated like yeah, it was on each other, right? right People right. who like immigrate to whole different continents, generally like things weren't going so great back home, right? right. And right. so this is how we do this. Yeah. Oh. Right, I, I forget whose quote this is, who said this, and I, I, maybe we can find it and put it in the show notes, but somebody says, no one experiences violence for the first time by committing it. Yes. No one, no one encounters violence for the first time by committing it, right? So like yes. anybody who's like committing violence, like, is is doing it because it's it's already happened to them and and you know whatever like someone listening to this out of context not knowing me whatever can can you know tag me as a rape apologist or whatever right. which which I'm not but my own experiences yeah. with with dealing with people who have caused harm is that like my own like personal accountability processes with people who have harmed me is that like that desire for catharsis does not come from like making someone else suffer too mm -hmm. it like does it does not it's like it's a temporary relief perhaps but it does not solve it doesn't actually heal the wound mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's like it's terrible news you know that's like terrible <laughs> news and I am sorry to say it that like that like someone else getting their due does not actually make me feel better in the long term because like I think all of us underneath systems of of domination and punishment have this like soft bleeding little heart that just wants everything to be okay again mm -hmm. that just wants everyone to be okay right and like i i like the 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 catharsis that can come from like somebody else really you know giving it to them the you know like get, they get punished they get whatever they get excommunicated that it like it only feels good for for a time and then underneath that mm -hmm. um underneath that there's still this like this this tenderness and this woundedness that that is not that is not healed that is not made whole by that by that doling out of punishment mm -hmm. so we're starting to kind of um kind of sidle up to another thing I wanted to ask you and that and so let's talk about how um men people assigned male people who identify as masculine um can actually like preemptively <laughs> be, be um, assigning some of their own resources to their own healing. <laughs> I would love to talk about that. So 
you have a program called uh, Undoing Patriarchy. It's interesting because when I was on your website, it says you you do countercultural life coaching, which is like, oh, life coaching that's that's countercultural. But I was also like, also is kind of like teach me how to be count, you know, like how to be an activist or like how to be countercultural. It's like, yeah, I would like to have a countercultural life. <laughs> so teach me how to do that. Um, and I sort of see undoing patriarchy, this program uh, that you have as, as part of that. So um, tell us what it is. I, I'd love a more full accounting of that. And also kind of what made you decide um, that that type of coaching was something that um, you should, you should do and you could do. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, the, the sort of like nuts and bolts of it is that the undoing patriarchy is, but it's sort of a, a header for a project that includes both an eight week course, um, that has happened both live in person and also as an on, a live online course. And then also, um, one-on-one -on -one coaching that I've done with men and, and male assigned people. Um, over the course of the last three years or so. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the tagline for it is like uh, emotional skills, emotional skill building for feminist men. Um, so it's really like, it's really specifically for men who already like have some power analysis, have some, some sense of things. Um, and the reason that I started it was because I kept seeing with the men that I was collaborating with, that I was dating, that I was friends with, that are my family and, and community, that like all of these like extremely well-meaning men were continuing to cause so much harm um, because of their kind of own lack of emotional skillfulness, um, which I really, you know, I like, I blame patriarchy for that. I don't think it's the fault of individual men that they, they both like, they don't, but they both don't get the skills that women and female assigned people do around being with their own feelings and being with other people's feelings, being emotionally sort of attuned. Um, and, and to like further that they like, they're like actively penalized for having those skills. Um, and so it's not, you know, I don't, I don't blame them. And yet if they don't take the, if they don't take the initiative, if they're not doing that work, um, to sort of gain those skills on their own, um, they will move through the spaces that they're in and just sort of wreak havoc and cause harm, even though they, they really mean well. And, um, yeah, I just really saw sort of a need for that in my own community and uh, really felt like uh, there was a sort of mounting frustration <laughs> with, the, with these like, you know, sweet, kind, nice, good, good dudes who just didn't, hadn't, you know, had gone part of the way and had not fully, had not fully gotten there. Mm -hmm. Not that there's a there to arrive at, but like, right. you know, had missed some of the, missed some of the pieces. Mm -hmm. And so this is something, uh, naturally, there are many people listening right now. Most of the listenership is probably female. I think it's like, how do I sign my significant male friend up for this bear? <laughs> oh my God. It's so funny because if this class were, if the class, if the class were like women could sign their men, their male people up for it, it would just sell out all the time. But because men have to like self-select into it, I actually really struggle to get, um, I struggle with the marketing. I struggle with membership. I struggle with like getting people to sign up for it because I think that there's a real, um, reluctance to, to sort of like out for men to allocate resources or time or energy or effort or any sort of expenditure of anything to show up for this work. 
I say with love, you yeah. know? Um, and so, yeah, uh, if people, if people of any gender want to know more about it, they can go to the <laughs> website, which is undoingpatriarchy.com, which, um, I, I'll just name that, like, I only bought that do domain name, like, two years ago, and I, I was like, okay, this is a, this is a sign that this work really needs to be done, that this domain name, <laughs> this domain name is still available in 2018. <laughs> no one has bought this domain name. I must really need to do this. Someone really needs to do the work and let it be me, so. So it was uh, a sign. Yeah. It was, yeah, I took it as a, I took it as a sign. So, uh, that's so great. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I will say, um, my husband Ruben has already volunteered himself. So this is why I was like, well, I will ask them to come on my podcast and that will encourage them to offer it again. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, he was like, no, check it out. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I like what, if you were to just sort of give men a sense of like, how, how do they do, like, what are you teaching them? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much, right. There's so much that we could, that we could do, but I feel like, so in terms of like topics that we cover, we really, we start with sort of looking at like, um, decentering maleness, decentering masculinity and like uh, what that what that looks like and what it means that to sort of me chills. I'm like tingling all over. I'm like, ooh, fun. Like, right. Yeah, say more. Yeah, yeah. Um then there's like a section about nurturance and vulnerability. Um, and sort of like looking at their needs, looking at their, their, um, looking at the needs of others, noticing that noticing their own needs, noticing the needs of others. Um, uh culpability oh sorry yep well i was just gonna say so you know i'm thinking of course of ruben my husband who grew up in the 90s he's he's self-identified sensitive 90s guy so and and he's more of an anxious attachment attachment style and so he's very feelingsy is this still gonna be relevant to him yeah i think that i mean the, the other sort of like pieces of the the puzzle that we we there is a whole unit on feelings and talking about them and feeling them and all of that and i think that that's uh, ruben sounds like sort of an outlier for a lot of, mm -hmm. for a lot of the people for maybe just like an outlier in terms of men yeah. in general just in general um, yeah right <laughs> yeah. um not knowing him at all but just from what you've <laughs> described here um yeah but there's a there you know then there's a whole section on boundaries and expectations and responsibility and codependency and all of that kind of stuff that we talk about. So, um, and it really is, you know, there's a section on culpability and consent and entitlements um, that I think is, is surprisingly, many men find it surprising how useful that section is in particular. Yeah. Um, right. And so there's, I try hard to not it's it's tricky right because I'm both like the whole course material is like a generalization about what patriarchy does to men and yet I know you know the the example you just gave is like okay he had these particular experiences in the 90s that have led him to have this particular set of skills but like also there's so many other things that like um so many other intersecting pieces that are like okay like white middle class masculinity looks really different than like black working class masculinity like straight mm -hmm. masculinity looks different than queer masculinity and so I really try to hold that complexity and not um I don't I don't come at it I mean I don't know what it's like to be a man right but I know what it's like to live inside of patriarchy I know what it's like mm -hmm. to live alongside men and so um I try hard not to not to frame things up in a way that's like trying to um 
pinpoint what anybody's particular experience is, but to help them see how uh, how patriarchy may making may make them uh, less able to see the experiences of the people around them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's helpful because of course nobody wants to go into a course that's based on um, a stereotype, right? No, no. <laughs> so yeah, um, that that is very reassuring. So okay, so given that. Um, you're, you're really quite immersed in some of the most infuriating and emotional and like very overwhelming <laughs> topics of our time. Um, the last question on the show is always the same. I'm, I'm curious, how do you personally cope with grief and rage? Yeah, I, lo- I love this question. It's so good. I mean, I'll, I'll say first of all, in terms of the work that I do with men that I, I just, um, I have found it to be surprisingly personally healing to do this work with men. Um, and sort of that like catharsis that I was speaking to before that like, um, there are so many people in my world who have, in my community, in my family, who have harmed me, who I'm never gonna get this moment of accountability with, who I'm never gonna get to see them at close range do their work to heal and to improve and to, to like get better and to, to reconnect and all of those things. And, um, and, I don't, and I don't necessarily want to have to see that but to get to see other people do it, it like, there's some kind of like alchemical magic that happens in watching men do this work that just feels so um, healing to me. And it's, I mean, it is, it is exhausting. It is enraging. It is, you know, totally grief stricken. And usually what I do when I finish teaching, I just like lay on the floor for half an hour. I just like lay on my back and like put pillows on top, heavy things on top of me and just like mm-hmm. you know, lay, lay out to kind of like de- decompress from it. But, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of the bigger picture, I feel like it's really, um, it has been really healing for me to do that work. But yeah, in general, I have really excellent crying skills. I'm really good at crying, love to cry, cry all the time, cry at anything, <laughs> cry at nothing. <laughs> uh, I really, this summer, I feel like I've, I've like cried so many tears around all, everything and just have really felt tapped into the fact that like I, I felt the message come through clear that like I'm crying for all the people that can't cry and that never could cry. Mm. And so I just, I'm like, okay, that's just part of the, that's part of my path. Like, and it's not, fu- it's not that fun, but, um, <laughs> mm. but I have other parts of my path that are fun and, and, you know, that's great. Um, I think the other thing too, that's been really transformative for me is just like not hating my feelings. Um, wow. Which is like, <laughs> I mean, I've never hated my feelings, except that maybe I've hated vulnerability and constructed an entire life around that for 35 years. But other than that, I've really liked feelings. So even just you saying that is, is like really eye-opening for me. Can you say it again and say more? Yeah. Um, I feel like for me, learning to not hate my feelings has been such a portal into, into being just like being okay as a human. Wow. <laughs> Um, but you know, I think like because of my childhood trauma, because of all these things, like I just like, there were so many feelings that I couldn't, that I couldn't feel that I didn't have space or capacity or support to feel and that it was really dangerous to feel for all these survival based reasons. Um, and of course, like, I mean, I say of course, but like, maybe it's not an of course for me, what I realized was that. It, through the help of lots of therapy and 12-step groups and lots of books and lots of laying on the floor crying is that um, the way that I like learned to survive all of those unfeelable feelings was to, to hate myself for having them, right? And that was like sort of the, that was the, that was the particular flavor of survival strategy that I took on. 
since little, since really little. And so like coming out of that and like, un, un, you know, unwinding some of that, um, just like that really tightly coiled tension and, and pain, you know, and being able to be like, okay, this doesn't feel good. And it's not my, it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to, I don't have to self blame or self shame for the fact that these feelings are here and that they want to be felt and that I'm feeling them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad you, you explained that bear because I, I know somebody is listening right now who has unfeelable feelings and hates themselves for feeling them. And I just love that you've given them, you've tossed them a key so they can get out of that prison. What a, what a terribly lonely place to live, especially since you're a child. Yeah. And a beautiful, like, yeah, liberatory practice just to not hate yourself for having those feelings. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it has been extremely, extremely profound. And like, I mean, I started in the place of just thinking my like, my thought mantra for years was just like, my feelings aren't a problem. Because I couldn't even get to the place where I was like, I accept my feelings. I like my feelings. I see that my feelings have a purpose. Like that was like too advanced, too far down the road. And just start, just starting with my feeling, maybe my feelings aren't a problem. And then that sort of like, started to give me some, some access. And and now I'm at a place where like, I actually feel like part of how I cope with grief and rage is just by trusting the purpose mm-hmm. and just being like, oh, there's a, there's a reason for this. I am here to do a thing. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't always even know what the thing is, but I am here to do a thing. And I like believe that. And that, that sort of like trusting in the purpose and the mystery and the magic of all of it feels really um, strengthening and sustaining. Mm-hmm. I bet. I feel strengthened and it's sustained just even hearing you say it. It's very healing to witness you. So I really appreciate everything that you've shared in the show. And I'm so glad we finally got to have a real life conversation, Barrett. It's been wonderful. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really, um, really fruitful, really, really healing for me too. Thanks so much. Well, we have some very good resources for you in the show notes, which you'll find on numinouspodcast.com. And go in-depth on Bear's websites at either bearcoaches.com or undoingpatriarchy.com. There's so much to sit with and think about in that episode. And um, yeah, I'm just so glad I got to have that conversation with Bear. Super fantastic. And I'm so glad you were here for it. Listener shout out to my one listener in Palau. To be honest, I did not know that your country is technically an archipelago of over 500 islands. Amazing. Situated over a thousand miles north of Darwin, Australia. You are far away, my friend, but for this hour, it was just you and me and Bear Makes Three. Just as a teeny tiny aside, uh, that book by Lillian Smart, the Southern white lesbian writer and educator who wrote Killers of the Dream in 1949, that one that Bear shared about, well, that book was published by W.W. Norton, who, by the way, is also publishing my book due out in spring 2022. It's a cookbook, actually, and the working title is The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year. I hope you'll stick with me in some form or another to celebrate with me when that is finally available for purchase. You can follow me on Instagram at Carmen Spaniola and be the first to know about all my offerings by signing up for my newsletter at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.